Welcome to McClanchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this fine and very chilly December day in Washington, D.C. Every week, we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can, by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I am Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy. Today, I am joined by two excellent colleagues of mine, Emily Cadet, a national politics reporter for McClatchy. Emily, thank you so much for coming on again. Thanks for having me. And for the first time uh, in Beyond the Bubble history, a momentous day, uh, <laughs> my colleague David Katniss is also joining us. David, thank you so much for coming on the program. It is an honor to be here. I was told there'd be cocktails, though. There will be cocktails after. Okay. Perfect. Afterward. Maybe maybe next week we change that. Maybe we do it during. during. Okay. So 7 a.m. seems like an appropriate time for that. I, I think so. It's a Thursday after all. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a lot to discuss this week, including the Buttigieg and Warren face-off and a discussion about whether there is even an actual front runner in this Democratic primary. I'm not so sure there is. We're going to dive into that. But first, wanted to talk about something that I think is a fascinating discussion not just on the news of the week, but the way politics is today. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is the trade deal that was struck between the White House and House Democrats, the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Uh, it replaces NAFTA. It was signed this week to a lot of fanfare. And Democrats on the Hill said that this was a big win for them, that they were able to get various environmental and labor concessions. The AFL-CIO came out strongly in favor of this agreement. And to Nancy Pelosi, from her perspective at least, it was a way to show that despite what's happening with impeachment, that they can still come to the table and get deals done, in her words, for the American people can work with President Trump. Uh, and it was a big win for them, both on the substance and the politics. However, however, there was uh, criticism uh, from some liberals in, in particular that they are handing Donald Trump a huge victory, a huge political victory here on an issue he cares a great deal about, and that that is what matters more politically. That's what's going to matter more politically next year than anything that Democrats can say in their ads or on the stump uh, when they're campaigning in various battleground House districts. That that's matter. And I thought it was fascinating because it's this really interesting argument about what matters in modern politics. And and just, just to set the, the stage here, I mean, the argument is that what the president's approval is, his standing, is almost all that matters anymore in politics. That the sort of ability of local officials to distinguish themselves from the national ticket is become marginal to the point of maybe not even existing. And that's the, the argument. I think it's a kind of a fascinating discussion to have. And so, Dave, my question to you, first question on the Beyond the Bubble, don't, don't be nervous. Do you think that the liberal critics have a point here? Do they th is the, the politics here not nearly as good as Nancy Pelosi thinks? I do. I, I do think liberals have a point. I think the dichotomy of this is pretty jarring. When you see one of the articles of impeachment basically saying this president is a threat to national security, a threat to the foundation of our country. And, but, you know, three days after we impeach him, we are going to sign in to law legislation that is a hallmark issue. You could argue it was the single biggest issue he ran on. Uh, you know, Certainly distinguished him from other Republicans. Certainly. Candidate. And this was what he said he was going to do. I mean, it was build the wall and renegotiate a huge trade deal. You know, you know the wall didn't get, get done uh, to the extent he wanted it. But this is going to be a huge feather in his cap right at a time where we are engaging in a 2020 presidential election that's going to get ramped up and engaged 
in a in a more intensified way in January. So yeah, I do think there is a bit of a risk. Now, now I understand the Pelosi argument of why they're doing this to give somebody like Abigail Spanberger something to go talk about. She's you know, an embattled member, embattled member, in, just won re-election in eighteen, right? In in Virginia, but I do think it's a risk because I think it puts some of the Democratic presidential candidates in a tough position. What does someone like Elizabeth Warren say about this? What does someone like even Joe Biden, who, you know, touted the first NAFTA agreement, is he going to come out and say this is a smarter deal and we should give the president credit? Or does he run run against it when most House Democrats are probably going to vote for this thing? I do think this makes some tough politics for the Democrats running to replace Donald Trump. Well, I mean, and just on a, on a sort of top line takeaway, right, There there's kind of an incongruence here between Impeaching someone, you, you think this person is worthy of impeachment, but you're also willing to come to the deal with them. It's on a, it seems like a difficult, muddled message. Yeah, you're giving you him credit for something uh, that's pretty historic, a new NAFTA. You know, I understand the Pelosi argument to protect the House. They want to say, hey, we can you know, walk and chew gum, but impeachment is the most dramatic thing you can do. You're basically saying the president is illegitimate. He shouldn't be the commander in chief anymore. But hey, nice job on this historic mm. legislation. Pat but, on he, the back. but it's fine on trade, folks. Yeah, what are we? He's doing a good know. job on that. It's not all you know. bad. It's not all <laughs> right, bad. Well, right. let, me, let me read something that uh, Jamel Bowie, the liberal columnist in the New York Times, tweeted this week. Uh, congrats to House Democrats for handing Trump a nice bipartisan victory on the same day they announced their articles of impeachment. Definitely not a muddled message. Uh, and he went on uh, to, to suggest, as David just did, yeah. that they validated part of Trump's narrative about himself as this great bipartisan dealmaker, in particular on trade. Now, Emily, you have covered... Democrats, you have covered yeah. House members who are in, in these swing districts. They're always eager to distinguish themselves as individuals and independents, and they don't toe the party line. Right. Now, so th- this would be Pelosi's argument, right? That these members now can say, in districts that Trump won and is likely going to win again, hey, we're we're not a San Francisco liberal. We're not a New York City liberal we're still able to come in and get things done for you. That's always like the priority. We get things done for you no matter what's going on in Washington. Do they have a, a point in, in all this? I think so. And, and I'm going to lean in a little more into Nancy Pelosi's side of the argument here, because I think if you look at districts like, I mean, you mentioned Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, but also there's uh, Josh Harder and T.J. Cox in the Central Valley of California, which are the biggest ag producing parts of the country. In fact, from a from a, just a pure numbers standpoint. And these are members of Congress who need to walk this tightrope. They just took this really tough vote on impeachment that might not play that well in their districts. But on the other hand, they can point to something that is really crucial to a lot of farmers, and particularly in California, it's dairy farmers who trade. I think Mexico's the number one partner export market for dairy. So this is something that they can actually point to as an accomplishment on their end as well. I mean, uh, not, not to dip into the substance too much on a political podcast, right. but you're absolutely right that they think they won major concessions on environmental yeah. and, 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 and labor right. uh, issues and, and that this makes it a good deal. And hey, isn't that what we're here to do? And they need I mean, they would have preferred just not to mess with NAFTA to begin with. But the fact is that this was like up in the air, even was making people really nervous in a lot of those districts. I mean, Mexico and Canada are huge markets for a lot of our agriculture products in particular. And so I think that for the 
separate from the presidential politics, which I think is a totally different matter. But for Nancy Pelosi, her most immediate goal is maintaining the House. So I think from that standpoint, it really is something that her moderate members really needed to have because they need to be able to prove while they're taking this tough vote that they're also doing something for their constituents. Timing was really awkward. I mean, I think they could have they would have preferred to not have that happen the exact same day that they rolled out the articles of impeachment, maybe a week or two later. But, um, you know, I think down the road, nine months from now, when people are going to vote, I'm not sure they'll remember all of that exactly. You know, on the substance of the criticism, I mean, there are some fiscal conservatives among them, Pat Toomey, a Republican senator from Pennsylvania, who's very, very fiscally conservative, who have criticized uh, the the deal because they think that Democrats want a lot of concessions. So there is there is something to that. It's just the tricky thing is you can run those ads, uh, Dave. You can say that I'm a deal maker even in the midst of impeachment. But if President Trump and this is just hypothetically, you know, is bolstered by a point or two because of a deal like this. Now that would be on the very high end of, of expectations. But look, this was central to his his pledge as a, as a candidate. It does bolster his image as a bipartisan deal maker, which is really a sweet spot for him politically. You know that any advantage that someone like Abigail Spanberger has, and you know anything she's able to say in TV, is just wiped out entirely. Right. And I and I my question is, do the House members that voted for this get credit for it politically? Because Trump is going to get credit because he's the president and presidents get credit for most anything they're able to do legislatively. The question is, is does it trickle down to these members who take this vote with him? And, you know, that's going to probably depend on individual campaign basis. But guess what? I don't think the Republican political committees are going to be (laughs) patting the Democrats on the back for this. They're going to be touting Trump. And if we live in an environment where, and you could argue this, that the only thing that matters in our politics is Trump, right? His approval rating, as you mentioned, if he goes up, he brings Republicans with him. If he falls a couple points, if he's at 42 or 41 percent approval, he's going to bring those Republicans that are challenging these Democrats down. If it's an all-Trump environment, and this is going to be a presidential election, not a midterm, I think he's going to get the benefit on this. I think he's going to get the credit. Now, again, all these House races will be run in different ways, different parts of the country. California will be run a little different than Virginia, a little different than industrial Pennsylvania. But Trump is going to say, look, they were trying to impeach me. And I'm producing, look at all the jobs I'm producing. Look at the unemployment rate. And I'm doing so well that I did the trade deal. And I think that is going to be his message. And Democrats are going to then try to say, well, but he's inherently corrupt and, you know, trying to rip down our Constitution when some you know, voters may say, eh, that's that's partisan. That's political. He did get the trade deal. Can I just point out, though, that the Please China move. trade deal is the one that's still looming. And he tweeted about it today, suggesting they're yeah. close to a deal. But we've heard that before. And I feel like in terms heard of that like many times before, <laughs> many, many times. Before. But I mean, that the bottom line there. I think is more damaging and potentially more rewarding if they can get a deal done. But I think that looming out there, regardless of what happens with this new NAFTA deal, that's the big vulnerability both for Trump but also opportunity for Trump. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, you I know, agree. I just think until they they figure out what they're doing with China, he can't really tout his trade accomplishments that much. I think the Democrats have an easy rejoinder to that. Now that's a, that's a, it's a great point, and it feels like the USMCA is almost something of an undercard. Yeah. Right, compared to the main attraction, which is a potential trade deal with China. And I know in my own reporting in, say, rural Wisconsin, even among farmers who are you know, very solidly in support of Trump, or at least they were in 2016, there is apprehension. Or even, even Republicans in the state will tell you that if nothing gets done 
on the deal with China, they're not sure that the farming community is going to be as supportive of the president. And therefore, rural uh, areas in a place like Wisconsin are going to be as supportive. They can't guarantee it anyway. That is the kind of pain that has been inflicted upon that industry because of the the, the trade negotiations. So it, it is, I mean, if we were going to take a step back and say, what is one of the, the biggest unanswered questions of the 2020 election? It would be that deal with China. Is there one? Is the re- reaction to it positive? Do some of the people like the farming community, are they going to be positive about it? Uh, not something we know about. And like we said, Trump can tease that uh, a deal might be forthcoming, but we have heard that many, many, many okay. times before. So let's switch gears here and let's talk about the Democratic presidential primary. In the last couple of weeks here, there's something kind of odd for a presidential primary, at least in a modern context. There is something of a transparency off between Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren right now. The short of it is both have challenged each other to reveal different parts of both their fundraising and their history in the professional world. For Pete Buttigieg, that meant revealing what clients he worked for while at McKinsey. For Elizabeth Warren, it meant revealing some of her uh, clients when she was a corporate attorney uh, decades ago. And I guess, you know, Dave, what is what, what do we think is happening here? Is this is this helping either candidate? Is this helping both candidates? Is this hurting both candidates? Is this a sideshow? What, what, what do you think is driving this kind of odd moment in the Democratic primary? I think this is fun for their supporters who are very rabid and the very online left, uh, the Buttigieg folks and the Warren folks. But do real voters, are they going to make their decision about because Pete Buttigieg worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield, a private health insurance company during his time at McKinsey. They're going to take him off their list as a consideration. Trying to paint Elizabeth Warren as pro-corporation, I think, is a, is a bridge pretty far. Uh, <laughs> but that's what the Buttigieg folks are saying, because she won't reveal her taxes more than eight years ago when she was doing private corporate work. They're saying, what is she hiding? You know, I think it actually am now looking at this after about of a week of it back and forth. I think it's hurting both of them. I think there's polling. Oh, tell, tell me why you think that. Tell me, tell me, tell me more. About it. I'm, not, I'm not challenging you. It's, I, it's interesting. I, I just think it's an insidery thing that voters aren't going to attach to. Everybody had a past. And there's not real evidence that either of them were shilling for corporations. Did Buttigieg do some work in the consulting field? Sure. He was a brainy whiz kid. So he was working on bro- grocery prices. He worked on Blue Cross Blue Shield. There's some you know questions about whether they ended up cutting jobs because of it. But it wasn't him cutting the jobs. The kid, he was like 28 years right. old when he was yeah, doing this. Younger. Yeah, I mean, it was a totally different. So does that- is Do you that, not does make that, those kind of decisions when you're 25 <laughs> years old? I mean, does that tell us any way he's going to govern as president? I don't think so. And I think like that the hit against Warren that she, you know, was, was shilling for corporations, this gets into a rabbit hole that we don't want to get to on this podcast, but sometimes bankruptcy for these for these companies that she was negotiating for would be beneficial to the employees, which is sort of the point of experts around this that I've read. Anyway, you get into the weeds on this stuff. They both kind of taken a dip, frankly, in, in polling that's yeah. out this week. You can argue whether you believe the polling, but you know now the Emer- there's an Emerson poll out of Iowa that just doesn't have Pete Buttigieg in first place. Warren in a lot of polls has dropped to fourth. So I think some of it is just is to try to spur some contrast around their candidacy. They're fighting for the same bunch of voters, liberal, college educated voters that are that are in Iowa, New Hampshire, white people, frankly. I think that's a big part of it. Right. Yeah, they, I think their constituencies overlap, and that's why you see them engaging directly. With they're one engaging, another. but it doesn't seem to be helping <laughs> either of them. And in talking to both of their campaigns this week, they don't think that this 
argument is going to go much longer. I mean, Pete Buttigieg has now bowed to it and has opened fundraisers, which is kind of interesting. You get a different glimpse of him when you get these pool reports about him standing next to Anna Winter in New York, talking to you know rich people, frankly, that uh, a glimpse we didn't see before. And he has released the McKinsey stuff. I've been talking to the Warren folks. She's not going to release any more taxes. She said that would set a new precedent. You know, she's released as many as Obama, obviously, much more than Donald Trump. So I think. It'd be interesting if we see this develop into the debate. As far as Warren's camp goes, they think they've won this, having Buttigieg conceded they're ready to move on and talk about substantial issues. Well, there's this kind of interesting argument about whose past matters and what what is when does it matter? Because yeah. for Pete Buttigieg, we said – now, this is, of course – Pretty recent in his life, but it's pretty recent in his life because he's only 37 years old. And just right. the work he did right out of college at McKinsey, you know, do voters really care about? Should they care about? Then conversely with Elizabeth Warren, you know, she had this entire other life as a Republican, yeah. as a right. conservative growing up and was a corporate lawyer, which, of course, is at odds with her image and her message now. But, of course, you know, she has talked at length about this transformation and why she became a liberal, why she became a Democrat, why she focused on bankruptcy law and the effect that that has on a lot of Americans. And and so does this just get lost in the wash, Emily? I mean, is, is this not going to be something we even talk about in, in January? To me, it's telling more about the Democratic Party than it is about these individual oh, candidates. Okay. There's okay. sort of this idea that any sort of private sector work almost, any type of work for a major industry or for-profits is suddenly unsavory. And then you're pitting candidates like Buttigieg, like Warren, like Deval Patrick, like Bloomberg, who have worked and made money and dealt with Wall Street and had this private sector background, which it seems voters actually like in a general election because they chose Donald Trump, whose whole campaign was premised on the notion that he was a businessman who could shake up Washington, with the folks who have just spent their whole careers in in the public sector, like Bernie Sanders. It was something Kamala Harris often pointed out before she dropped out, that she'd always only had one client for the people, Kamala Harris. So, you know, (laughs) career politician. Yes, exactly. So the counterpoint is that you're supporting career politicians, which I think when you go towards a general election, it's actually not an advantage. I think that maybe Elizabeth Warren's private sector experience could actually sort of moderate her image among voters who are concerned she's too liberal and too lefty. I think Pete Buttigieg's experience as we said, was he was just out of grad school. You know, I know people who work at McKinsey, the junior level analysts, they're not exactly the ones making these top level decisions the about what the corporations the- are wow. doing. He's kind of one of those kids they lock in a room for like 12 hours a day and, you know, make them crunch numbers. So I just think that the Democratic Party as a whole and these activists on the left who are sort of enacting these purity tests about what candidates have done in their past have to be careful because most people in America work in the private sector. I don't think people think that for-profit companies or you know big industries are in and of themselves inherently evil. Right. And I think that's potentially problematic. Or that most Americans see them. Yeah. There's something about the, the efficacy of these attacks because it's not just Buttigieg and uh, Warren who have encountered this. Court. I mean, Joe Biden's record has been picked over endlessly, including things that he said and did in the 70s. And there's just this question right. of, it gets a lot of media attention, and I would say that's, of course, warranted. I mean, we're here to scrutinize the records no matter how far they go back. But the question is whether or not this has resonated with voters. And, and look, in the case of Joe Biden, it certainly doesn't seem like it. I mean, we're going to get into it here in a, a minute, but in the national polls anyway, he is still a front runner. I don't think it seemed like that his position on busing 
decades ago move the needle at all for, for voters. And in fact, you hear from some voters who very aggressively, forcefully push back on that, that it shouldn't matter, that it was a different time, that he was trying to be a deal maker in the way that he had to be, in the way that he was elected to be. Now, in the case of Kamala Harris, I would argue it did matter, but you know her record as an attorney general. But of course, that was just a few years. That was this decade. But if yeah. she had an answer for it, uh-huh, it may not okay. have mattered. Right. So I think it's how you respond to it. Yeah. And Joe Biden had advocates from the African-American community being like, look, this was 40 years ago. We can't hold him accountable for this now. The whole country's changed. The Democratic Party has changed. Kamala Harris, when you asked her about her record, she it wasn't clear how she wanted. Did she want to defend it or lean yeah. into it? Or was she, she trying to deny distance? that she had changed it all, which was right. just patently, obviously untrue. And so then right. it became kind of a source of suspicion. The but. response is key. Do you have a coherent explanation for your work or for a decision you made 20 years ago? Frankly, you should if you're going to run for president. I mean, that's what they that's how they vet you. Right. You go in your team. You say, what are the vulnerabilities? What could be used against me? How do we respond to it? I don't think Kamala Harris did that effectively, and that's why she's out of the race, not because she has a past record, because everybody does. That's an interesting point, though. You can have a past, but you better have an explanation for yeah, it. Yeah, and Which a compelling Warren one. Ha- I think has been very Which effective yes, at addressing right. her past and explaining yes. that she no longer holds the same positions. I think if Harris had tried to kind of do something similar with her past and explain how she'd evolved since Black Lives Matter, et cetera, that would have been more effective for her than just the way she was very cautious about addressing her record. In it's, a, it's amazing. We spent most of last week's episode talking about Kamala Harris's campaign, dissecting why it failed. And we're here again a week later and still talking about yeah. it. I feel like there's just there's a lot. There's some lessons to be learned. There, yeah. I, I feel like she is going to be one of those campaigns that people point to for years to come to both the, you know, kind of a case study of what not to do in, in a campaign. Yeah. Hey, everybody, what's up? I'm Jamel Hill letting you know I'm back for season two of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And yes, I am still quite bothered. We rang in season one with guests like Snoop Dogg, Senator Kamala Harris and the cast of Insecure. Season two kicks off with a legend as in John Legend. And there are so many other special guests that we have in store. Come kick it with us and listen to Jamel Hill is Unbothered for free only on Spotify. McClatchy's Washington, D.C. Bureau is tracking the best election reporting from beyond the bubble in a new daily newsletter. Get the Impact 2020 newsletter in your inbox weekdays at 4 p.m. by signing up at impact2020.com backslash briefing. Okay, before we leave here uh, for the day, let's do a little big picture discussion about the Democratic presidential primary, the state of the Democratic presidential primary. We have one last debate next week before the, the year wraps up. And as we head into this debate and you look at the polls, both nationally, but particularly in early states like Iowa and New Hampshire, you get what is an incredibly muddled picture. Emily, I mean, I, I looked at it before we started the recording today, and it looked like a three-year-old's art project to me. Squiggly <laughs> lines everywhere, crisscrossing, dissecting each other with real, seemingly no rhyme or reason. Yeah. Again, particularly in Iowa and, and, and New Hampshire, particularly in New Hampshire. Is, the, is there a front runner in this race right now, or is it just a, a top tier of, of candidates who are doing better than the others, but none are doing so well that you would consider them the front runner? I guess I would probably say that Joe Biden is still the front runner just because of his dominance when you look at South Carolina and New Hampshire with 
non-white voters. I think that that gives him an edge, even if he doesn't win Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, you, there's plenty of debate to be had about how powerful that bump from particularly the Iowa caucuses can be. But yeah, the fact that there are just still so many candidates in this race, the fact that you have candidates with a lot of overlapping kind of value positions and identities like Bernie Sanders and Warren, it just fragments it so much that it's hard to really get a sense of who could be the winner. And I think until we see those first few elections play out, those primaries and caucuses, I think it's going to be really hard to gauge um, because we know that Iowa provides a huge bump and we know that New Hampshire can kind of alter the nature of a race. And yeah, that's going to change the dynamic completely. People are going to tune out a little bit over Christmas and they're really going to start paying attention. I know it's hard to believe from this vantage point, but a lot of people still aren't paying attention to this race and they will still starting early? in the new year. I feel like it's still <laughs> early. I feel like you would still find people, you know, it's still early. It's yeah. only it's less than two months away before Iowa votes. But hey, it's still early. It's, for a lot of people, it, it really is. I mean, not everyone is watching all of these debates and watching all of these candidates' commercials. I mean, the, the Bloomberg and the Steyer ads are kind of unavoidable. But unless you're in some part of Des Moines, you may not be hearing about all of these candidates yet. So. And, just, and just to set the stage a little bit, if you look at the Real Clear Politics polling average, Buttigieg is in first in Iowa, though maybe has taken a dip there. Biden still leads nationally. Um, and a lead that's actually grown a little bit, yeah. but that hasn't doesn't seem like that has translated to Iowa or New Hampshire. New Hampshire, the polling is just a mess right now. Yep. For one, we have not had a lot of quality polling there yeah. to begin with. And second, again, all of the candidates are bunched together at this point with no clear front runner whatsoever. And the thing that surprises me, the discussion, Emily, you just touched on it. You know, this race is still so up for grabs. And yet in next week's debate, I don't think there's any real expectation we're going to see a lot of fireworks. Right. I mean, maybe maybe you disagree with that, but I yeah, uh, that's I, not the read I get I just at all. don't know because I expected fireworks last time yeah, and then we were kind of let down. Everyone sort of moved back for what they were saying, you know, at, mean, at, at events and on Twitter. And, and I mean, an hour into that debate, you and I were talking, the three of us, in fact, were yeah. talking on G-Chat. We weren't even really sure what to write. Right. It was a forgettable debate. I it mean, was. because the knives I thought were going to be out for Buttigieg and then nobody went at him and except Tulsi at the end. So I think that was odd. I mean, so I don't I'm not going to try to predict this debate because maybe we'll say that nothing's going to happen and then they're all fighting. So I just would I would frame this as as Biden as a marginal front runner, but essentially a four way race. And I think March is going to matter more than February, frankly, because most likely just looking at polling now, you, we're going to have a muddled February, probably different winners, or if not different winners, closely contested winners and between first and second place, a couple points separating the winner of, of you know, Iowa and third place in Iowa. Same thing, New Hampshire. And frankly, you know, these are 5% of the delegates. And the more I talk to the, the campaigns, it's like March is going to matter because you've got mega huge states voting with all the delegates. So I don't think you get out if you place third in New Hampshire and you've got the money to play into March. You know, who wins California? Who has a delegate strategy in Texas? North Carolina, Massachusetts. These are all huge states that offer many more delegates. So unless you've got a runaway train, when, you know, Biden surprises us all and starts running through this, or, you know, Warren surprises and wins Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. I think you're going to have a divided race that goes into March, and then you've got to see who can run the distance here. Who's a marathon runner, not a sprinter? Who's built organizations in the states aforementioned and and can run an ad campaign in California, but also run a delegate strategy in Minnesota? 
And I'm not sure who that candidate is. Frankly, you know, Bernie Sanders is proving to be much more formidable than we had thought three months ago, six months ago. He's going to have money. We're going to have new fundraising numbers at the end of the year. I would expect Warren's money probably drops off a bit from the, from the early part of the year. But we know Buttigieg is very well funded. So does he get out if he loses Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada? And South Carolina, no, he probably keeps going because he's building his future. He's building his brand. He wants to go campaign in California. So I think March is what I'm starting to focus on more and more and more. I know Iowa is going to matter and New Hampshire is going to matter. But to me, March probably determines this nominee. I mean, as you said that, the two names that came to mind, one was Bernie. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, he has the resources and the organization in a lot of the states in March in a way that other candidates perhaps don't. The mm-hmm. other candidate uh, who came to mind, Bloomberg. Yeah, uh, the Bloomberg scenario came to mind. I don't know that he has an organization, Dave, but uh, he certainly has plenty of money. Well, I have something for the for another segment on Bloomberg that I will save Ooh, that's, for that's, your for your final uh, that I don't want to just dispense with now because then I'll be left <laughs> with nothing. So, that's a, um, that's a tease, but yeah, folks. I have a little Bloomberg theory and a little tease on that. You know, I think then uh, let's just go ahead and get to it then. Uh, <laughs> All right. Now, now I'm curious. All right. So the, it is what uh, I say every week is my favorite segment. Tell me something I don't know where Emily, you and Dave will tell me something that I don't know, that the listeners don't know that's interesting or says something important about our politics. Dave, OK, obviously you're going to go first now. What, what, what do you got? <laughs> so I was just talking about Super Tuesday, the March states, how campaigns are building out there. I did a story on this previously, but it looked for from the candidate, the major candidates that are running, Bernie sort of has the biggest build out into these states. He's got about 10 state directors. I think he might be up to a dozen now total, including the early states. You know, most of the focus is on the first four. Michael Bloomberg, of course, is skipping the first four states. He's not participating. But I'm told by the end of the year, he's going to have state directors in 30 states. Wow. And that is a number that jarred me because obviously he's got unlimited resources, but he is hiring some pretty big talent. He just hired, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but Aaron Pickrell, uh, he was Obama's Ohio state director, very well respected. He's going to be running Bloomberg's Ohio race. And I'm told the campaign is going to roll out more big names in the coming weeks, uh, operatives that have experience, people that in, in political circles will know. And of course, this is a long shot strategy, but Bloomberg is betting that there will be a fractured field going into Super Tuesday, and he will be the only one who has real organization, frankly, just because of his money, in these 30 states that vote after. So it is a long-shot theory, I think, but he is seeing if he can buy this thing with organizational talent in states that no one else is focusing on as much as as he will be. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of a fascinating argument that they, almost in the way that, that you said, Dave, I mean, they're almost ignoring the early states. They are, yeah. They're totally. just, I mean, just, and, and very explicitly yeah. so. Not even on the ballot. Not yeah. even on the ballot, not going to worry about it, but can swoop in on, you know, starting Big on ones. Super Tuesday. Yeah. And because of his financial resources and potentially if there isn't a clear front runner at that point, yeah. I think they're banking on that. It's, it's a fascinating scenario. I think yeah, normally, in, in normal times, or even like, say, a few months ago, the three of us would have said, boy, that strategy sure seems crazy. I'm not. Entirely is convinced of that I'm not uh, and any, I'm anymore, the way things have shaken out. Okay, Emily, what do you got? So I've been watching the uh, Nevada caucuses because Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden have all been making pilgrimages out there this week. And I know Nevada kind of gets the short shaft in the East Coast media. People don't 
pay as much attention to it, it really but it does, does get <laughs> you're, you're, it really does. It's it they're voting before South Carolina even and it's the first really truly diverse state to vote in the Democratic primary. These three candidates were all wooing the culinary union, which holds a huge amount of power in the state. They're based in Las Vegas, which is the most populous part of the state. And it was interesting to me that when Bernie and Elizabeth Warren spoke, they both faced a lot of skepticism about their health care plans because the union has fought really hard to get really high-level health care coverage. They don't want a Medicare for All system that's going to take that coverage away from them. Biden actually was received really well because he promised not only to preserve their health care, but to fight the Cadillac tax. That was part of the Obamacare plan that he helped pass. Um, but he says he'd find another way to pay for Obamacare and get rid yeah. of the tax. So I just thought that was interesting, something to watch. Um, I think Nevada right now, Biden is pulling ahead. So that's another state like South Carolina that could really help him, I think, in February going into this this March race for delegates. It's, it's, it's fascinating because my uh, thing I'm, I'm going to talk about is kind of similar to that, actually plays off of that. You know, there is a lot of polling on healthcare and people's views on the, our healthcare system. But if you want to make the argument uh, that reforming the, the country's healthcare system to a single payer system, getting rid of private insurance altogether is going to be difficult, you look at a poll like one that was released this week by Gallup that showed that 61% of Americans are actually satisfied with health care costs. Oh. Now, that's still obviously 40% or 39% of the country is an awful lot of people uh, who would say they are not satisfied. But this is this really is what points to the difficulty of such a huge reform that you're going to get people who aren't all that unhappy with the, the health care system the way that it is now. And if you're not all that unhappy with it, Odds are you're not going to be inclined to, to want a massive sweeping reform that changes how we entirely how we pay for for healthcare, uh, and that's the that's the difficulty. Again, there is a lot of conflicting polling on a very complex issue like this. One poll only tells one small slice of the story, but I do think if you step back and take a look and say, what are the politics of this? You know, for such a massive reform, you really need a mandate from the American people, and, and the data on that is just a little iffy. It's a mm. it's a little squishy, and that's why some Democrats worry about a Medicare for all message in the general election. Okay, well that's it for this week's show. I of course want to thank our producer Jeremy Sheeler and to our executive producer Davin Coburn, and thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.